have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20 is where we'll start. This whole series, which I have been very passionate for because I know it's needed. It's needed in my life. I've seen this in preparing this and thinking through, Lord, where do you want me to apply this in my own life? And I know you need it. And we've looked at how do you kill sin? Either we're killing sin or sin will be killing you, was famous quote by John Owen. So what have we seen so far? First of all, you've got to acknowledge the spiritual battle. There is a spiritual battle. And we said, why is there so much temptation? Why do we have to kill sin? It's because of Satan's temptations and God's testings. And God has a purpose to draw us to himself. Satan has a purpose to condemn us and push us away. There, you have to acknowledge that we are a part. And you're on one side or the other. Either you're in God's family or you're in the devil's family. And even if you're in God's family, you have a target on your back. And Satan wants to get you. Then you have to accept the ground rules. And we said the basic parts of this is when tempted... God is good, you're responsible for your sin, and deliverance is possible in Christ. Those three truths need to be firmly implanted in your life. Next, we aren't going to face sin in the future until we deal with sin in our past. Putting the past where it belongs, behind you once and for all, Under the blood of Christ. Now, let's move forward and tackle what's ahead of us. And then we talked about focusing on God's purpose. This is the big picture. It's not just about not doing certain things. It's not about rule keeping. It's not about uh, performance and perfectionism and all the false ways to deal with sin. We need to focus on being transformed into the image of Christ. God's goal is to multiply image bearers. And that's the greater picture and the greater purpose. You have to keep that in mind. And so today, we're going to move on to the next part of how to kill sin. And it has to do with a biblical oxymoron. How many of you know what an oxymoron is? What is it, Sarah? Two words together mean an opposite thing. Very, very good. It's a figure of speech in which contradictory words are put together in an unexpected way, right? Now, how many of you knew, this is something new that I learned, Gavin, you're going to enjoy this, that oxymoron is an oxymoron. How many of you knew that? Okay, so here it is. Uh, It comes from two Greek words, oxus, which means keen, and moros, which means stupid or moron. And so it means to be keenly stupid. So oxymoron is an oxymoron. Okay, enough of that. I just had to throw. I thought that was cool. So here's ten awfully good oxymorons. Do you see what I just, did you see that? Awfully good. Okay, okay. Here you go. Here you go. So throw you now. What's the famous, the most famous oxymoron? Jumbo shrimp. Jumbo shrimp. Thank you, Mr. Brown. 
Uh, friendly takeover. Right? Cruel kindness. Exact estimate. Give me an exact estimate. Devout atheist. Right? Random order. Icy hot. Right? Wise fool. Definite maybe. That's, I like that one. Yeah, a lot of people live in the definite maybe realm. Uh, and then, of course, just war. So those, those are ten awfully good oxymorons. But here's a biblical one. The crucified life. The crucified life is a gracious biblical oxymoron that is the key to killing sin. And so this week and next, we're going to look at God's gracious oxymoron, the crucified life. And today we're going to look at two aspects of it. The first aspect is this, to live the crucified life, you live it in a person. The crucified life is lived in a person, Jesus Christ. And this kind of takes us back to what we looked at last week. The crucified life isn't a form of legalism where you obey rules. It's not a form of lawlessness where you just do whatever you want and God looks the other way. It's in a person. So it can't be packaged. Anybody that gives you a formula, you must do this, you must do that. uh, There's things we need to do. But if they're not centered on the person of Christ, then you are off balance. It's in the person of Christ. And it's too easy to quickly dismiss that. Yeah, yeah, I know, Jesus. Now let's get to the good stuff. No, Jesus is the good stuff. And we must live the crucified life in him. So there you are in Galatians chapter 2. Let's read verses 19 through 21, which verse 20 especially, to me, is a single verse that summarizes the crucified life. Let's look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. Okay, the law says, thou must do this. The law is a reflection of God's standard of righteousness. All fall short of the glory of God. So the law kills. Okay? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's that oxymoron idea. I died so that I might live. I died to the law. The law put me to death. But it put me to death to show me I can't do it of my own. I have to live If I'm going to live, I'm going to have to live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So there's the oxymoron. I've been crucified with Christ, and yet Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, And gave himself up for me. Substitution. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died needlessly. In other words. If there's any other way to kill sin. 
other than Christ, then Christ died needlessly. Okay? If, there's any, if Christ is an add-on, then Christ isn't necessary. He's either everything or he is nothing. So let's look at three characteristics of the crucified life. First thing I want you to see is that the crucified life is based on the great exchange. The great exchange. We've, we've seen it in Galatians, but I want you to see it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Galatians 2.20 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 really capture the crucified life. So turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Notice what it says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. What does Christ get? Our sins. What do we get? His righteousness. That's the exchange. Uh, That's quite a deal in my book. What do I give to God? Here's all my sin. What does God give to me in Christ? Christ's righteousness. So that's a reminder that the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is our sin. Oh, you know, there's no reason for pride. There's no reason for I can do this. No, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is here's my sin. And in exchange by faith in the Son of God, I get Christ's righteousness. There's a couple other things I want you to see in that verse. There's two big ideas. And everything in the crucified life is built on these two ideas in that verse. He made him to be who knew no sin to be sin (coughs) on our behalf. Substitution. He took on sin in our place. When he was on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved. He absorbed the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. All of that fell on him. Substitution. He became our substitute. But notice, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is the concept of identification. Substitution, he stands on our behalf. Identification, all that he is, is ours through union with him. If you can get those two big ideas, substitution and identification, that's all we're going to talk about for the rest of this lesson and all of next uh, week as well. Substitution and union or identification with Christ. So the crucified life is based on the great exchange. Secondly, the crucified life is the result of our union with Christ. It's the result of our union with Christ or our identification with Christ. Notice the quote that I have there by James Montgomery 
boys in your notes. What does it mean to be in Christ? And that's when, uh, Paul's favorite phrase. He uses it hundreds, probably thousands. I haven't counted recently. In Christ, with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, in Christ, just on and on. What does it mean? Every time you see that in your Bible, you want to think union with Christ. Notice this quote. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be so united to Christ that all the experiences of Christ become the Christian's experiences. Thus, his death for sin was the believer's death. His resurrection was, in one sense, the believer's resurrection. His ascension was the believer's ascension. So that the believer is, again, in one sense, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I hope you see how our previous series on the ascension ties all this together. We think of crucifixion. We think of resurrection. But we are seated with Christ. All authority is his over heaven and earth. And that is our resources. Now you say, why does that matter? Because that means that in Christ, we don't accept Christ and then try to live worthy of him. Instead, we say, I'm unworthy. I receive what only you have for me. I live to be what I already am in Christ. It, it, it's, it's a significant difference. There's a lot of people that come to Christ and they think, okay, I need to believe in Christ. Okay, I believe in Christ. Now I need to live like a Christian. And then they try harder and harder. Okay, they're working to earn what is actually already theirs in Christ. The more you know about Jesus Christ and the work he's done, and the more you realize that as a Christian, you're united with all that he is, you are then motivated. Oh, I want to live up to who I already am. So the, the pressure's off to perform. I already am that. Now I get to rest in him and rely on him. And in fact, as we're seeing in these verses, he will live that life through me. All right? So that's the idea. Now, I've just listed in Christ, here's all the things that I'm assuming, and it's dangerous to assume, I realize, but all that we have in Christ, we have to keep in mind when we think about killing sin, when we think about the, this lesson. In Christ, there is substitution for sinners so that he died, his crucifixion, he died in our place. Resurrection, he rose on our behalf. Ascension, he ascended for us. In Christ, there's propitiation, which is a word that simply means satisfaction for sins. In Christ, the wrath has been satisfied. God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. In Christ, there is redemption of sinners out of bondage. All right? In Christ, there is justification. We've been declared right with God. 
completely righteous, a judicial, the judge has hammered the gavel and said, not just not guilty, but righteous. Are you with me? Not guilty means you went from a negative 10 to a zero. Righteous means I'm not a zero, I'm a plus 10. I can't get any better. I'm as good as God due to justification. And then imputation simply means my sin was counted on Christ when he died and his righteousness is counted as mine by faith. In Christ, there's reconciliation of enemies into friends. In Christ, there's adoption of slaves into sonship. Listen, all of that is why we can kill sin. Okay, all of that. And all of that is ours by virtue of one thing. We are united in Christ. All of that. It's all a package. The crucified life is a result of that union with Christ. All that he is, all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he is yet to do. Thirdly, the crucified life, and this just follows, the crucified life, therefore, is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. The gospel is the crucified life. The crucified life is the gospel. And that's how you live it. Notice this quote by uh, Todd Wilson. Realize then that a gospel-rooted life inevitably leads to a crucified life. If we're truly rooted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, we will experience an ongoing kind of death a continual crucifixion with Christ. We cannot be firmly rooted in the gospel and not experience a kind of sacrifice and suffering that we might very well call death. If there's no death in our life, there's probably no gospel either. In a sense, what he is saying is this. If you're in Christ then you have died to sin and you're alive to God. And if you claim to be in Christ and you're not killing sin, then it's likely that you are not in Christ. I mean, it's just that simple because now God is gracious and long-suffering and you can't take, you know, if you're like me, you can wake up some mornings and, You don't feel saved at all, right? You just feel like the devil just, you know, right there with you. You, We're not talking about a moment in time. We're talking about a pattern of life. And if you're in Christ, then sin will be killed in 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 a process and progressively. There should be death to sin and life to God. Now, based on the great exchange... The result of our union and rooted in the gospel, what are the conditions for living the crucified life? So let's look at three conditions. First of all, 
If you're ever going to live the crucified life, then you must die with Christ and he must live in you by faith. That's back to Galatians 2.20 again. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So here's the great exchange. My death for his life. My sins for his righteousness. And this happens the moment you turn to Christ. The moment you turn to Christ by faith, the moment that you are born again, you are crucified with him and he lives in you. And you say, how does he do that? Because he's up there and we're down here. The Holy Spirit. The moment you believe, the Holy Spirit enters your life and makes his death your reality. His life begins to live in you. Secondly, if you're in Christ, then you've already died to sin. If you are in Christ then you've already died to sin. Now, this is an important point. This is where a lot of people stumble. They think, I need to keep killing. I, keep, I need to keep dying to sin. Okay, so I figure out, how do I die to sin? I need to die to sin. And, and we try harder. It's tempting to think, I've got to become dead. I've got to pray that God will crucify me so that I'll be alive in Christ. But look at Galatians 2.20 again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Let me give you a little grammar lesson. That is a perfect tense. And the beautiful thing about a perfect tense, it describes something that happened in the past with ongoing results in the future. So what happened in the past? What? I was crucified with Christ. What's the ongoing result into the future? You're dead. You're still dead. So you were crucified, and the result is you will always be crucified. You are dead. That's done, and that's settled, and that's a reality. So if you are in Christ, then you have already died. You died in Christ, and you stay dead to sin. Number three, if, you're all, if you have already died to sin in Christ, then accept this fact by faith. You accept it. I mean, think about this. Christ loved me enough to live the crucified life for me so he could live the crucified life in me. Does that make sense? So he lived it. He lived a perfect life. He offered up his life and he died having absorbed the wrath of God against sin, became sin for us. And then he rose, to, uh, rose again, alive to God. And that resurrection power enables us to live for God. He gave himself... All that he is for me, all that I am. So he's this 
righteousness. I'm this mess. And he gave his righteousness for me in light of all the mess that I am. And that's living the crucified life in a person, in a nutshell. All right. Now, God knows we need help with this. And so he gives us a second help in the crucified life. And it's this. Live the crucified life with a picture. Not only living in the person, in a person, Jesus Christ, but we live the crucified life with a picture, baptized into Christ. For this, I want you to turn to Romans 6. And we'll spend the rest of our time there in Romans 6. So the crucified life is a person. It's lived in and through a person who lived it for us and lives it in us, Jesus Christ. But we have this powerful picture through baptism to remind us of the realities of the crucified life. All right? Now, we're in Romans 6. Romans 6, as you may know, is a classic chapter on baptism. If you want to understand baptism, you look at Romans 6. Now, scholars debate whether this is talking about baptism in the Spirit, where when you get saved, the Spirit unites you with Christ, or is it talking about water baptism? Some scholars say there's not a drop of water in chapter 6. Well, I'll let them debate that, because in the end... The difference is not that great because water baptism is a picture of the reality that happens when you are saved and the Spirit baptizes you into Christ. So that happens, but one of the ordinances of the church is water baptism. And it's to remind us that you have now entered into the crucified life. Okay? We shouldn't be baptizing anybody that doesn't understand the significance and meaning of baptism. And that can happen, uh, you know, uh, spiritual truths can be grasped at a young age, but they must be taught. And when they're taught, they must be embraced and understood. Because the whole meaning of baptism is you're committing to living the crucified life. And that's what it pictures, right? Well, let's see. Romans 6. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul is just in chapters 4 and 5. Well, let's even go back. Chapters 1 through 3. All of mankind has fallen short of the glory of God and is in need of salvation. Chapters 4 and 5. Salvation is by grace through faith. And God's grace is greater than our sin. And that raises the question in verse 1. Well, if God's grace is greater than my sin, then why not just sin and God's grace can always forgive me? Is God's grace greater than your sin? Is God's grace greater than the greatest of sins? Is God's grace greater than the sins of the whole world? Yes. Does that mean that I can just live anyway and always fall back on God's grace? 
That's the question. So let's read it. Verse uh, 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Listen, it was so bad. They weren't just saying, well, if I sin or I can continue in sin. It was the idea, the more I sin, the more there's grace. So the way I further or showcase God's grace is by sinning more. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, right there, I want you to realize that baptize is not an English word. That's a Greek word that hasn't been translated. It's been transliterated. So it's just been transferred over. So you still have to ask, what does baptize mean? All right. And the basic meaning of the word has always been, and and in fact, all denominations even agree, it means to immerse, to be so united with something that you're fully identified with it. It's immersion. So when you read that, you would read, or do you not know that all of us who have been immersed or identified into Christ Jesus have been immersed or identified into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through immersion, identification into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become... Now, here's the deal. For if we have become united with him... Take your Bibles... And it's not sacrilegious. Mark that Bible up and circle united with him. Because in essence, the Bible interprets itself. And even if you're not sure I really know what I'm talking about by the word baptism, the Bible has just told you the implication. United with him. Identified with him. Him. For if we have become, as you could literally say, for if we have become baptized with Him. But see, He's telling you what it means. United with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. So all I'm going to do is that tells us that the picture of the crucified life, it's pictured in our baptism, our identification with Christ. So let's just outline this and uh, let's just follow Paul's logic here. Okay, first of all, the question. Here's the question. Should Christians continue to sin after they are saved? Should Christians continue to sin after they are saved? Now, verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase. Notice what the question is not. It's not, do Christians sin? Because what's the answer to that? Yes. All right? We could, we could all stand up and share about yesterday. 
maybe even this morning, right? Maybe even your thoughts as you drove to church. Okay, we, we sin, all right? Very evident. The question is, should Christians continue in sin or continue to sin since God is greater than their sin? Is grace an excuse for not killing sin? The answer is, well, we'll wait. The question is, according to verse 15, should Christians continue to sin since they are no longer under the law? If we're dead to the law and there is no law, then we get to be lawless. And if you try to restrain me, you're a legalist. Are you, are you with me? I'm a grace guy. Don't, don't give me rules. I'm a grace guy. Don't, don't, don't restrain my lust. I'm a grace guy. And if you start trying to limit or uh, confront my sin or challenge me to kill my sin, well, that's just, you're putting me back under law and I'm not under law. You see how the reasoning goes? So that's the question. Now, what is the answer? What's the answer? No way. No way. The Greek is meganoito. Meganoito. It's a forceful word. Word. Uh, King James translates it, God forbid. No way, Jose. Absolutely not. Don't even think about it. No way. That's the answer to that. And now he explains why that is. So let's look at the reason. So we looked at the question. We looked at the answer. Now, what's the reasoning? The reasoning is in verse 2. He says, may it never be. And here he asks a question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin? So here's the reason. Every believer is dead to sin and alive to Christ. Should I continue in sin? Should I have a carefree attitude towards my sin? Should I listen to this series but not do anything to apply it? Oh, God forbid. Every believer is dead to sin and alive to God. So let's talk about what death, because if you don't understand what death is and what life is, you won't understand the crucified life. So let's look at it. Death is separation never extinction. Death is separation, never extinction. And I've got the verses that can can support all this. The idea, there's three kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death, which Revelation Revelation calls the second death. But in every instance, death is not extinction, it is separation. So physical death is what? Separation of the spirit from the body. When your spirit separates from your body, you're declared what? Dead. And yet you haven't ceased to exist. You're still alive, but you have suffered physical death 
there is a separation. Your body is rotting in the ground. Your spirit is either in the presence of God or awaiting judgment. But you haven't ceased to exist. Spiritual death is separation of the person from God. So in Ephesians 2, it says we are dead in our sins. And yet it says in which you lived before coming to Christ. So you're very much alive. Spiritually dead people are very much alive. And they can be very active and they can even be good at times. But the reality is they are totally separated from God. And that's what we got to get in our minds. We look at people's performance and we go, well, I can't imagine my unsaved friend going to hell because they're good. No, no, you got to see they are separated from their creator. They're enjoying the good life, perhaps, and never saying thank you to God. Okay? They're separated. The, the whole person is separated. That's why when Adam and Eve bit and took part of the forbidden fruit, they didn't drop over physically, but they were instantly what? Separated from God. But they were very much alive. Now, physically, they began dying immediately. The process. Third death is the eternal death, the second death, and it's eternal separation of the resurrected person from God in the lake of fire. So again, even unbelievers, and sometimes we miss out on this, even unbelievers will be resurrected with a body. But it won't be a glorified body. It is a body in which they will stand in judgment before God, and then they will be thrown into a eternal conscience torment torment for eternity in the lake of fire. They are separated from God for eternity. And then, thus it is the second death. They've already experienced um, the, it, it happens after their physical death. Now, taking all that we see here, <coughs> excuse me, What's that mean when it comes to death to sin? I've died to sin. What does that mean? Death to sin is separation from the controlling power of sin in one's life. Turn to your neighbor and say that, you know, mind blown. Kind of do one of these. Can you do this? Very good. Very good. Mind blown. Are you with me? Death to sin, it doesn't mean sin is no longer active in your life, all right? I mean, or it's not active. Sin is a very powerful force. And if you choose to give into it, you will sin. But the reality is you're separated from the controlling power of sin in your life. You have died to sin. And you know what the sad thing is? Many of us are so familiar with this, we've lost the awesomeness of this. I had a friend, Tom, he was my best buddy, in fact, best man at uh, Gwen and I's wedding in seminary. Went to seminary, and one of the first classes we had to go through at Dallas Seminary was uh, living the Christian life. And we went through Romans 6, 
And Tom comes to me one day, he says, Chris, guess what? I, I, I can't believe it. We don't have to sin. And I'm looking at him and he's, he's like, I've never heard that before. I'm like, you need a new home church, you know. But sometimes it's not the church's fault. It's the hearer, okay? I'm still amazed at how many times I've taught somebody something and then they come and, you know, discover it. I'm, I'm happy they discover it, okay? But it's like you've heard it's the youth camp effect, right? You know, it's just we t- I'll never forget Zach. He said one time kids came to Zach and said, why don't we sing these songs at our church? He said, we just sang three of them last week, okay? It's just it's the context. But... It was liberating for Tom because he, I mean, can you imagine the burden of trying to live the Christian life and not realizing you don't have to sin? And yet he realized that. Let's look at life. What is life? Life is relationships. Life is relationships, not existence. Okay. Life is, death is separation. Life is relationships. And just like there's three kinds of death, there's three kinds of life. Physical life is the relationship of spirit and body united together. Spiritual life is the relationship of a person with God through the person of Christ. God and and us are no longer separated. We're in a relationship. Eternal life is the eternal relationship with God through his son. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what's that mean to be alive to God? Alive to God is a relationship with God that results in resurrection power controlling your life. So you're dead to the controlling power of sin. You're alive to the resurrection power that can overcome death, Sin and Satan. There you go. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. This is what our reality is. So what is the picture? The picture is this. Believers have been baptized into Christ. They've been baptized into him. Look at verse (coughs) 3. Excuse me. Or do you not know... That all of us, not just the ones who have spoken in tongues, all of us, not those that have went through a certain ritual, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. So two points I want you to see. Number one, baptism is immersion to the point of identification. Verse 5, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The word baptizo in Greek, it means immersion, but it's immersion with a full identification. The illustration I like to use is, how many of you know Lydia of Thyatira in the Bible? Lydia was a seller of purple. And that means that Lydia would take wool clothing or whatever material and would baptizo it 
into purple dye. That's how they used the word. They would immerse it in purple dye, and when they brought the material out, it had been so immersed, so identified with the dye purple, it was called purple, a seller of purple. That's how you use the baptizo word. That's how the common way of using that word. So baptism, baptism is immersion to the point of identification. We have been completely identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is, all that he's done, all that he's doing, all that he's yet to do. Number two, believers have been united together in the likeness of his death and the power of his resurrection. We have been united with him. Therefore, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And here's the part too often we leave off when baptizing, to walk in newness of life. Buried in the likeness of his resurrection. You're dead. You come out, you're raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Why? To walk in newness of life. Live the crucified life. If you're a believer here, and you have been baptized, that picture has been sealed into your heart. That picture is there to remind you going forward, here's why I kill sin and replace it with righteousness. And so look at the summary. Christ died on the cross for our sin. Verse 3, all have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Christ was buried, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And burial simply means you were really dead. You're really dead, right? No one wants to get, you know, you hear stories about people buried and they're still alive, but that's not good, okay? When you're buried three days, you, you're dead. Christ was raised from the dead. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Christ walks in newness of life. So we too might walk in newness of life. So here's the point, and we'll end with this. The point is, I can just say no to sin by faith. Tom Stout was here this morning. He'd say, the most glorious thing you can learn is that you don't have to say yes to sin. You can say no to sin. You don't have to live a defeated Christian life. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So here's end with this. The penalty for sin has been paid. Amen. Oh, that's so weak. The penalty for sin has been paid. Amen. Amen. The power of sin has been broken. <laughs> the power for sin has been broken. Amen. Amen. The presence of sin can be resisted. Amen. Listen, well, yeah, you're getting a little better there. Listen, until the day we die or the rapture comes, and our bodies are transformed, this body of sin is still here. 
but we can resist it. The penalty's been paid. That happened on the cross. <coughs> the power has been broken. That happened in the resurrection. And that means if you are in Christ, the presence of sin can be resisted. I hope you live the crucified life this week. And it happens up here in your mind. It happens in your emotions. And it happens in your will, in your choices. But you've got to renew your mind with these truths. A person and a picture. Next week, we're going to look at a process. And the rest of Romans 6 takes us through a process. Let's pray. Father, these are glorious truths of your gospel. They are not something we can come up with, human reasoning. This is not a religion some man or woman created. This is divine revelation of how we can live a gracious oxymoron. We can be crucified yet alive. We can be dead to sin while being alive to God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Seal these truths through our faith. When we got saved, seal it through our baptism and what it pictures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good stuff. We'll complete it next week. 